Dobrý večer. Good uh, evening. My name is Přemysl Pala, I'm the director of the Czech Center. It's a pleasure to welcome so uh, many of you. Well, first, uh, I'd like to uh, confess, uh, I feel, as we use the word good in so many interchangeable instances, there has been actually very little good in the real sense in the previous 14 days. On the contrary, the previous two weeks, we have witnessed an unprecedented, unjustifiable, in any terms, military aggression toward the sovereign state of Ukraine. The initial days might have resembled, especially for many Central Europeans, uh, some historical parallels with the occupations, uh, the German occupations of 1939, the Russian invasion to Budapest, to Hungary in 1956, and of course the military crash of the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia in 1968. It's absolutely incomprehensible as the history repeats itself in 21st century. So despite the world overwhelming condemnation and evoked many economic sanctions, the situation in Ukraine is deteriorating by each day and hour, resulting in hundreds and hundreds casualties, as well as the largest post-World War II refugee exodus in Europe. As yesterday, President uh, Zelensky, uh, in historical video address to the House of Commons, paraphrased Winston Churchill, Ukraine will not capitulate, it will fight to the last drop to win the victory. I think the history will tell, will judge if the West has done uh, as much as it could and how effective its support uh, has been in defining moments in the fight for freedom and democracy in Europe. To address this and other questions we have assembled this reputable uh, panel of distinguished speakers and experts on Central and Eastern Europe. So without any further ado, I'm really delighted to introduce the chair uh, of the panel, Edward Lucas, the former senior editor of The Economist. Among the panelists uh, are James Rogers, the former BBC correspondent in Moscow and author of many books uh, on Russia and security expert. With a profound expertise and knowledge on Ukraine, I'd like to welcome Marina Pesenti. I'm also very delighted to introduce Reverend Kenneth Novakovsky, uh, who is a bishop of Ukrainian Catholic Church in UK, who has also spent a number of years living in uh, Ukraine in Kyiv. Uh, and last but not least, I would like to introduce the historian and former Czech ambassador to United Kingdom, Pavel uh, Seifter. So before I turn the floor to our panelists, uh, there is one addition to the, to the program. I'm very pleased that I can invite to the podium uh, Uliana Klimyuk, uh, she's a Ukrainian student uh, in London, who has courageously agreed to share with us some of her and family first-hand personal experience with the situation uh, in Ukraine. So, Uliana. 
good evening everyone thank you it's truly an honor uh, for me to stand here uh, and speak uh, on behalf of ukrainians of my friends and family who are currently staying at home and i'd like to begin uh, by requesting everyone to stand for the minute of silence for all those falling defenders of ukraine and peaceful civilians who lost their lives defending their home thank you for the past two weeks, the life of many Ukrainians, including my family, uh, my family and friends, has been filled with anger, fear and anxiety for our future and the, uh, the present of our home. You truly begin to understand the value of every message you receive from your friends and family. You truly begin to, to fear the silence you get in the periods between all those messages. What for many of you, is a mundane thing to text and message your loved ones. Currently, for the people of Mariupol, they do not have any contact or any messages to uh, to know whether family, their family is fine, whether their family have enough food to eat, whether their families are safe. Only today, I received a couple of messages from my ex-classmates and friends asking me whether I know anyone who who can contact or who can visit their families back in Mariupol just to check on them and just to check on the fact whether those people are alive. And unfortunately, even if I had a contact with a person who was living in Mariupol, they give up on the hope on trying to contact their loved ones because the situation in the city is grave and no one knows what's going to happen. From the morning of 21st, uh, 24th of February, the life of many Ukrainians has changed forever and will have a lifelong impact on how we treat certain commodities like food, like electricity, like anything that you take as a normality is currently under the threat. A lot of a lot of my a lot of my friends are currently um, living close to close to the areas that have been bombed. They, they're living in the private houses and they are anxious because they don't know where to escape, where to, where to flee, when their city, when their towns are basically surrounded. A person who's been working for my family for more than 10 years, who I met a couple of times a week and we talked about all, all the other things and I treated her we treated each other like friends we have we, we have no contact for the past five days and she's been residing in a town close to Irpin that's been heavily shelled by Russian invaders <clears throat> and we don't know what, what happened we don't have any means to contact we of course hope that she and her family managed to escape. But in reality, 
it it is hard to think what it's hard to think what's happened it's hard to imagine or spec or speculate i'm really proud of my nation of my country for being resilient for for, for being strong spirited in the eyes of a real threat a threat of death threat of being stripped of their lives and freedom when when some people just say that Ukraine should capitulate, uh, I'd like to say that for us to capitulate is to give up everything that we hold dear, everything that makes sense to us. As you know, under the Russian regime, a lot of those things will not be accessible anymore. So I'll ask all of you to support us in any way possible by coming to the talks, by spreading awareness, by giving donations, by going out on protests. I'm really proud of all the Ukrainians here, of my friends who came today to support me, who also have their families back in Ukraine. And uh, their support and their presence really reassures me to keep fighting in any way that is accessible to me. So. Thank you, everyone, for coming today, and Slava Ukraini. So, dear Juliana, thank you very much. I do thank you with my full heart for your bravery to search, to uh, share such a powerful testimony uh, with all, all of us, and we, all of us are with you and all your uh, friends in Ukraine and, and nationals. So now, without any further ado, I would like to turn it over to uh, to Edward Lucas. Hello, is that better? Wonderful. So I was just saying nice things about you. I was saying what a ple pleasure and a privilege it is to see so many um, people in the audience, some of whom I've known for more than 20 years. And in fact, in 1988, I came into this building for the first time to try and get a visa to be a freelance correspondent in the then communist Czechoslovakia. And the epochal changes that um, followed my arrival in Prague in early 1989, where we seem to be getting decades of history happening in weeks, seem to be happening again, um, though in a far more tragic and unbearably um, suffering-filled way. Um, but the world that we lived in for the last 30 years is gone. We are going back to a world of the 1930s, the world in which Hitler marched into the Rhineland and had the Anschluss with Austria, and of course attacked a defenseless, peaceful Czechoslovakia in 1938. And it's up to us, what happens? Does it carry on in that direction? Or do we get back the spirit of 1989, which um, was marvelously written about in the FT this weekend, that the extraordinary solidarity we've seen to, on the humanitarian side, the complete rejuvenation of the Atlantic Alliance and NATO, the um, belated awakening of Germany and all these other things may give us hope, cause for hope amid our rage and grief. But I find my joy at these things is mixed with both feeling of the terrible price that they've been paid, that has been paid by Ukrainians. These gains are paid in blood, but also fury that we were warned for so long 
For so long, we are warned, going back to the 1990s, we are warned by Estonians and Latvians and Lithuanians and Poles and Czechs and Slovaks, including your former president, Václav Havel, who was deeply worried already in the 1990s at the way that it was going. And we in the West didn't listen. We didn't listen because we were arrogant and ignorant and naive and complacent, and most of all, because we were greedy. We just loved the Caviar Express, the cheap gas, and everything in between. So our title today is United We Stand, Divided We Fall. And that's really the question. Do we find unprecedented levels of unity where we help Ukraine withstand this aggression and maybe even triumph over it and rebuild the legacy that we squandered so grievously after 1991? Or do we fall? Is this just the beginning of another cycle of aggression and destruction? So I'm very pleased that we have this, this panel here, and I'm going to turn, first of all, to Bishop Kenneth. He's not retired. This is an abbreviation in English ecclesiastical jargon for right reverend, which is one up from being a reverend. It means you're a bishop. And Bishop, bishop Kenneth is the right reverend and is um, from the Greek Catholic Church. And please, if you haven't been there already, please make your way to Binney Street, to the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Cathedral in the heart of Mayfair, and just see the both on the liturgical and on the humanitarian and social side, all the things that are going on there. It's the beating heart, I think, of the spiritual side of the Ukrainian presence here in Britain. Bishop Kenneth, it's an honor to have you here. Over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Edward, and very good to be here with all of you. Perhaps we could just take a short jaunt back into history. In 1989, in um, December 1st, 1989, then President Gorbachev met with uh, the Holy Father, Pope St. John Paul II, in the Vatican. And at that meeting, Gorbachev told the Holy Father that it was now possible for religious organizations, religious denominations, that they could register with the government authorities, basically meaning that before you could register, you didn't exist, but now you could register, you could have a bank account, and you existed. And I think that people all over the world saw this as part of this interesting thing called glasnost and perestroika. And in 1990, I was part of a delegation of international journalists from the West to go into Ukraine right before Easter celebrations to have the journalists see what perestroika and glasnost meant vis-a-vis public worship, faith, issues of faith. So we came into the city of Lviv with uh, 30 journalists, and we were able to show them what was going on. We went to Kiev. We met with um, Orthodox authorities. We met with um, then-patriarch of the uh, later patriarch, uh, Filaret of the the, uh, Orthodox Church, And I think it was a time of hope. I think that, yes, glasnost and perestroika could be measured by the way church and faith organizations, um, communities, religious dominations were treated. At the fall of the Soviet Union, a a year later in 1991, there became a great religious fervor. The persecutions seemed to be over. And we continued on that way. But 
over the last years, Kremlin propaganda started referring to various um, branches of both the Orthodox Church and to the Greek Catholic Church in ways that were very, very defaming. And we're even seeing that in many ways today regarding the denazification of uh, Ukraine and trying to um, stoke division in the churches. In the West, uh, today, in fact, the, um, church, the Christian leaders of all of the Christ major Christian denominations here in London have sent a letter to our government officials here in the UK, standing united. There is no division. At that meeting and that, in that letter, we had um, such diversity. We had um, people from the Salvation Army, from the Greek Orthodox Church, from um, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England. And I think one of the important things for church leaders, both here in the United Kingdom and throughout the world, the way that they can show support and solidarity with the people who are fleeing Ukraine to come to a place of safety, but also for those who have remained in there, to keep them in their prayers, to keep up hope, and let also their words echo in the chambers of of government to encourage government officials to be doing the right thing. Thank you so much, um, Bishop Kenneth, for that. And of course, your church, the Greek Catholic Church, was persecuted so savagely under the Soviet rule in um, in occupied in, in, in Ukraine. And it has been such a um, source of Fury, fury to the KGB and the NKVD over those decades, and its survival and re-emergence is nothing short of, of miraculous. <clears throat> and I'm going to turn to Marina, who I've known for so long, we've always been rather struggling sometimes at the events we've been to to get people interested in Ukraine, and there's been, um, I would say it's been a bit of an uphill struggle over the last 15 years or so, sometimes to get people to take Ukraine seriously, and we've done it for Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian economy and Ukrainian charities and, of course, Ukraine's um, political fortunes. And the one thing we're not short of now is attention, but I wish you were otherwise. Uh, that's true. Um, I'm actually so overwhelmed with emotions, uh, apart from responding from what you've just said. Um, I also would like to add a personal note to it, because um, I have a big family which uh, now used to live in the northern suburbs of Kiev, and uh, they, all of them, all 13 of them, have been uprooted now. So they are displaced, um, you know, IDPs in their own countries. Some of them will become refugees, uh, leaving behind several houses, lots of memories you know, and a very uncertain future. Um, and um, as Ulana um, um, mentioned, um, you know, there are lots of cities which remain cut off and there's a really humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in front of our own eyes. And I still, it, it doesn't really sunk, uh, sink in. Uh, it's still disbelief. And uh, despite all these feelings, you know, one tries to analyze and comprehend uh, why it's happening and what's next. Uh, but um, to bring a bit of observations, which might be particularly relevant for the Czech audience, um, I will 
tell you a couple of stories of um, how I could see uh, the perception of Ukraine evolved um, among Czech people. Um, I have a sister who, um, who is older than me who traveled to the Czech Republic when she was um, a student in the Kiev University in early 80s. And she told me um, they were warned not uh, to, uh, to go anywhere else on their own and only go to the places like pubs, uh, which are like approved, vetted by KGB uh, in advance. And uh, one of her friends actually um, disobeyed this rule and ventured into in Prague in a faraway corner of town and uh, went into a beer house. And when she walked um, in, um, all Czech people who were in that beer house looked at her and gave her a blank stare and they understood that she was a Soviet person. And uh, one of them said uh, in Russian, I can see there's a Russian person among them. So let's raise a toast to the Czech-Soviet friendship. And every, obviously she understood, you know, the deep sarcasm of this situation and she just thundered out of, <laughs> of that beer house. But I'm telling the story to demonstrate that, you know, her being Ukrainian, she was perceived as Russian by the Czechs. And this was like maybe 14 years after the Prague Spring. And now let's fast forward to 20 years later. Um, I uh, then had Czech friends uh, from Prague as well. And I remember sharing my impressions after the revolution of dignity, which took place in Kiev eight years ago. And I remember telling my, uh, my friend Camilla from Prague, saying, look, what we've achieved, you know, we managed to remove this um, dictator. And uh, this was like a human spirit. We have 100, uh, you know, uh, people, Ukrainians who died on the central square in Kiev and so on. But she didn't seem to be very impressed, you know. I, I still felt she didn't really, you know, uh, realize what we've been through and what we managed to achieve. And obviously then the annexation of Crimea followed and the Donbass war followed. And now when I see the amazing response that we get from, uh, you know, our uh, Eastern and Central European neighbors and the Czech Republic, uh, you know, when houses are offered to Ukrainian refugees, Czech government supports us, uh, they give us weaponry, you know, thus finally, finally, Ukraine is in control of its narrative. And finally, you know, the whole world uh, realizes that contrary to what Putin says, that Ukraine is a country, U Ukraine is a very united people, very motivated, and it's a democracy. It's a vibrant democracy. And here I just want to come to the main point. Uh, of course, we can muse on uh, military strategies and what's going to happen, uh, whether Putin will manage to ov overtake the whole of Ukraine or the chunk of it, how it's going to play out, etc. I just want to again fast forward a bit and call on all our European friends to imagine for a second that three you know, months later on or years later on, Ukraine lays in ruins. Um, okay, the West doesn't interfere militarily, uh, but then you have an enormous country of 45 million people just laying there in ruins. Uh, you know, democracy crashed, millions of people emigrating, uh, enormous cost of, um, you know, uh, restoring it. And then uh, European Union and NATO having a very long border now with a very belligerent Russia, um, you know, with an increasingly uh, unruly leader. Um, is it really the situation that the West would like to face? 
Um, I would like to remind you that in the last eight years, Ukraine really strengthened its credentials as a democracy. We had presidential elections twice. We've had free elections. We have free media. We have very vibrant civil society. We are a democracy, you know, in any by uh, any measurement, maybe even um, more advanced than some uh, Central European countries. I would not name which, which you know, some of them show don't, don't mention quite, yes, quite authoritarian tendencies. So um, it's a big question to ask, and uh, whether uh, Putin will whet his appetite by, uh, you know, uh, consuming the whole of Ukraine. Will he stop there? That's that's a big question. And what's going to happen to the European project when, once it's done? Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that, Marina. And I think you put your finger on the most important point. We always do too little too late, and we're going to do it again. I'm old enough to remember the Bosnian War, and we were told for ages there's no way the West can intervene in Bosnia. It's just um, these ancient hatreds and what can we do, and this kind of arrogant, ignorant approach from the outside. And then when, when it was already too late, then we intervened. And, and I suspect that the, the same may happen now, that only when we have many more millions of refugees, many more people dead, even greater threats to our security, maybe nuclear leaks from radio, from, from, uh, from power stations that have been bombed or neglected, and then the public opinion will be pushing so hard that what was politically impossible will become possible. And then we'll wonder why, do, why, we, didn't, why we didn't do it earlier. And I feel we are heading for an almighty confrontation um, with the um, regime in Russia with the with the Kremlin and I would rather still I'd rather do it while we still have 44 million Ukrainians still fighting in an intact Ukrainian state than do it when Ukraine has turned into a vast version of Syria and um and the and Putin is trying to get a land bridge for, across Lithuania to the um to, to Kaliningrad or some other um geopolitical demand. Um, but enough from me. Let me turn to Pavel. You've been a diplomat, you're a historian, you see it in um, through both an intellectual and a practitioner's lens. And I suspect you may even, like me, be old enough to remember the events of 1968, which probably have a horrible resonance now. So do please give us your thoughts. Thank you, Ed. I'll start in <clears throat> by confessing that I feel awful. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons is that I remember far more back than than '68 in Prague. Um, I was a refugee to to Britain, um, and um, my parents with me ran away in. It's just now an anniversary. In the mid of, in the middle of March 1939. And um, <clears throat> it looked like my country would not exist anymore. And then, as you mentioned, 1968. The terrible feeling I have now is of having lived through the beginnings of what happened here in Ukraine. There are signals that tell me I've seen this, I've heard this. And that's 
maybe the moment of coming too late, realizing too late. Um, so then, within hours of the planes and the tanks rolling in, I could make it from the Czech mountains, Izerskehori, to Prague, which was difficult. Tanks everywhere, trains not running properly and all that. And I made it. I could become part of some resistance. And um, that week of resistance was so important, not only to my own life, but to what belonged uh, to the soul of the nation. And uh, now we have it again. And as you mentioned before, you don't want to capitulate. If it happens, it's just terrible. And if it happens without resistance, without making and leaving a mark, it's so difficult to recreate the future. So capitulation is a big and a terrible issue. And I can't even imagine what will happen in Ukraine, <clears throat> whether and who will capitulate. Will it be us here in the West? Will it be, in the end, somebody speaking for the nation that doesn't want it? I don't know. What rests is a terrible feeling, and a terrible feeling of helplessness. I mean, OK, I'm sitting here with you, and we are telling our friends in Ukraine that we are with them. But I personally can't do more. I'm stranded on this island. I'm not near enough. I'm not in Prague, at least in Central Europe. And so <clears throat> the good feeling comes from the people in, <clears throat> in the Czech Republic and in the countries around that woke up and are taking in now already millions of Ukrainians. And that's something to recreate a free country there then. Thank you so much um, for that and for giving us the historical echo. I, I was aware that you had got longer memories than just 1968. Um, and my own brother in, lives in Krakow. His house is full of refugees. It's a completely normal thing. I would love it if we could have this here, but unfortunately the, the people we would like to host aren't even able to make it. Um, to this this country yet, and that feeling of, of of helplessness and distance which you describe, I think probably hits everyone in the audience. Um, I want to move on at some point to discuss what we can do, um, because I think we do have agency. There are things we can do. But first of all, I want to turn to James, who's been chronicling these things as a BBC journalist, as a filmmaker, and as a as an author um, for really quite a few years. And I would love to hear your perspective on it. Thank you very much, Ed. Um, I arrived here uh, a little early this evening, so um, 
I took a walk up the road to what used to be the Soviet embassy, where in the summer of 1991 I went to collect a visa uh, to go for to report on what turned out to be uh, what was my first international assignment and what turned out to be the last summer of the Soviet Union. A few weeks after I collected that Soviet visa, I was standing uh, in the main square of Kiev, as the dateline invariably was then, uh, on the 4th of September when the Soviet-era flag was hauled down from the top of the parliament building there and replaced by the blue and yellow one so familiar today to great cheers of, and singing of songs and a complete outpouring of joy which left a great impression upon me as a young journalist about how strong the sense of nationhood was and one which I have never ever forgotten since. Um, because my background is in journalism, because my research now as an academic, uh, and my last book is about the way that Western journalists have covered Russia, I'm going to offer some reflections upon the role that um, Russian and to a great extent international media are, are playing in this conflict. Firstly, I think we're going to see something that is uh, that we've been told in our modern age where we take our smartphones out and access information from all over the world. Something that we've been told with successive waves of new technology is not possible. That Whenever these wonderful new technologies come along, tyrants cannot lie to us and they cannot restrict information. We're about to see um, the Russian government try to do that in the 21st century, and the first signs are very unfortunately... Um, that they are doing so successfully. I, um, as any Western journalist who lived in, in Russia for years, um, w was a great listener to Echo Moskvoy. I was very sad to see the demise of that. Likewise, in more recent years, I was very sad to see uh, the demise of, uh, of Deutsch, of TV Rain as well. Um, I don't know if any people in the audience saw the very good documentary which was on uh, Screened, the screening of which was brought forward on BBC4 last week. I'd been at the screening of that just a couple of days earlier, actually, when the producer of that film was there. Um, and she was, I think, quite fearful of what was about to happen. And sure enough, a couple of days later, it was shut down. So we're going to see um, Russia... Um, Marina also mentioned narratives. We're going to see, already we see from some of the stuff that's coming from, uh, from Russia, a completely conflicting uh, version of events. And, and I'm going to offer some, I think, pessimistic suggestions in the short term and some more optimistic ones in the longer term on that. Um, I am very concerned for my counterparts, my, my successes as Western journalists in Moscow. I think it has become all but impossible to work there. Many in the audience will have noticed that the New York Times decided to, to leave, uh, that they would withdraw their staff yesterday. One doesn't know for how long, but you know, from my research and um, the histories that I've written about this, it is possible in the early 1920s, in the early years of the Bolshevik regime, uh, there were no international correspondents in Moscow with a consequence it was very, very hard for anyone uh, to find out what was going on. So we're about to witness, and indeed it is already unfolding, a media war quite unlike any other. Uh, and it's going to be a real testing of the limits and the capabilities of 21st century communications technology. I'm going to conclude by recalling a picture which I saw um, on the second day of the war in the Times newspaper published here, um, which was of two captured Russian soldiers, uh, young men, conscripts, I imagined. And I, I looked at the photograph in the newspaper and I was reminded very, very starkly 
of a scene which I witnessed as a reporter in Grozny in the winter of 1995 when the Chechen fighters had captured a number of these hapless Russian conscripts who hadn't been told where they were going, hadn't been told what they were doing, and soon fell into captivity and were paraded uh, for us uh, Western journalists. And it was quite a sad reflection to think that the young men I saw in the picture in the newspaper last week uh, would not even have been born uh, when I met their, their predecessors there. So to offer something slightly more um, optimistic, I think, about what might happen in the longer term in this media war. Um, there is a precedent for governments, there are many precedents for governments lying to their people um, during wartime. There is a very major precedent in this country in the First World War, when, um, which Philip Knightley, the historian of the reporting of war, judged to be one of the most shameful periods in, in the whole history of British journalism. There was heavy censorship, uh, those reporters who were taken to the Western Front were given a very sanitised version, were subject to uh, the most restrictive censorship. However, however, after a few months, the soldiers, and there were many thousands of them, started to come home and started to tell their stories themselves. Now, if the figures that we were led to believe before the invasion, 150,000 up to 190,000 Russian soldiers were, are really there, then it doesn't really matter eventually how much censorship you get because they are going to go home and they're going to say, you know, you know, Mum, we're told that we're going to fight Nazis. Well, actually, we were capturing villages rather like ours. And those young men who don't come home will also tell their own story. Um, the consequence in this country of that was that journalism lost any sense of public trust and for 20 years to the extent that at the beginning of the Second World War when some atrocities were reported, audiences refused to believe them. But there are also precedents uh, in Russian history, more distantly and more recently, for ill-thought military campaigns being a factor in major changes. I refer to the First World War in Russia and the way that was poorly prosecuted, leading, uh, being a factor in the collapse of the Russian Empire. I refer in more recent history uh, to Afghanistan and what that did eventually for the end of the Soviet Union. And it may just be that some of these stories coming home and the reality of what is going on dawning may just have an effect on Russian public opinion and home, uh, and quite a dramatic one too. Well, thanks for that, James. And that sets me off beautifully to my first um, point that I wanted to make. Can I say, hands up, anyone in the audience who can either speak or write Russian? Fantastic. There's a website called 1920.in. It gives you random Russian mobile phone numbers. You can phone them or you can WhatsApp them. In fact, they are what you can WhatsApp them by phone or by, by message. Um, these are things that are very different from in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, you really only had your shortwave radio. You couldn't really send postal um, propaganda. It would get caught. And was, we, did, we, we did a few things with very carefully um, handwritten, lots of different handwritten, handwritten envelopes. But we do have ways of getting through to ordinary Russians now. Um, I've, I've watched people do this. There's one very clever um, thing which I listened to a recording of where the, the guy phones up and says, I'm trying to reach Nina. And the person at the other end of the phone says, Nina's not here. And they say, well, um, I'm, I'm worried about Nina because I know her son's in the army. And you just get into conversation um, that, that way. Of course, Nina doesn't really exist. But there's all sorts of stuff we can do to try and um, throw sand in the eyes of the people running the Kremlin lie machine to puncture this, this new Iron Curtain. And the fact that we have so many people from outside who living in the West who want to help and have the ability to do it is a great difference from the, um, from, from the, from the old Cold War. So I think that crowdsourcing our response 
and getting people to do these small acts of um, solidarity, re resistance, and disruption is 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 one thing that we can uh, that we can bear in mind. Um, I, want to have, I, I know there's a lot of people in the audience who I think probably have very strong strong views and would love to share their thoughts and experience. But there's just one other point I want to make, which is you very rightly, James, talked about techno optimism and this sort of naive idea that you can never have censorship. Now you've got the internet. The other thing that struck me really forcefully, and it's actually been on my mind since the since the Yugoslav War, is this sort of naive what we might call Euro optimism that Europeans don't kill each other. This is something that happens in faraway countries among people with different different skin colours. But we in Europe have a unique kind of civilization, culture, way of doing international relations, which means that genocide happens in other in, in, in other countries. And and that's always been utterly um unfair, untrue, unfounded. Um it was I think heavily disproved with um Chechen wars, you could maybe blame that on the Russians, it was blamed on the you know, disproved by the ex-Yugoslav wars and that sort of, we ring-fenced the Balkans and said, oh, well, that's different. Um, but I think that it's it's just time to, 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 dump, to, to dump this idea. I was once on a radio show with an American who said, you Europeans, you're just between genocides, you just think you're at peace. Um, so I think we need to look quite hard at our own, and, and that sort of arrogance and complacency, I think, is at the root of our ignoring the troubling signs that have been so abundant for so long um, coming from, from the Kremlin. Anyway, enough of me. Um, does anyone on the panel want to respond to what anyone else has said? Bishop Kenneth, what was the most interesting thing uh, that was said, or was there something you'd like to either disagree with or to amplify? Well, I think we've all talked about the importance of information and disinformation and weaponization of information. And I think all of us here, I think we have a, a duty now to always speak to our neighbors, to those who are our colleagues at work, to make sure that they understand information that is true. Uh, I, I liked what uh, Marina was saying about the evolution of the understanding of Ukraine and Ukrainians. I grew up in, in Canada, and growing up as a child, people would say to me, well, there's no such place as Ukraine. Show it to us on the map. And I would come home crying, saying, we don't exist. And I think that in many ways, we've, um, we've centered on this. Yes, now the world knows we exist, unfortunately, for this horrible reason. Thanks. And Marina, do you, uh, one of the things that's also changed hugely is the kind of consolidation of identity and activism in, and, and, and self-awareness in the Ukrainian diaspora and for years we've you know there've been ukrainians coming here in london it's been a slightly kind of sometimes atomized community it's been you know, there've been moments of interest and solidarity but i feel that the just as the attack on russia from russia has sort of forged the U ukrainian nation in fire and blood at home it's also had a tremendous effect on the diaspora as well do you want to just talk about that for a moment yes absolutely consolidation of democracy uh, diaspora is just a continuation of consolidation of ukrainian identity which was happening has been happening in ukraine for the last eight years we really uh, made uh, really big strides on that and the war in donbass and annexation of crimea were defining factors uh, suddenly you know ukrainian society became much more aware that we are not an ethnic based identity you know we, we are building a civil identity where people believe in values uh, you know rule of law 
um, human rights, justice. Uh, so these are the ideas which really became very important and uh, also we became more aware of you know, uh, the legacy of Crimean Tatars or Ukrainian Jews or Ukrainian Poles. Um, and another important thing, which is, uh, and that's really something that Putin and uh, Russian elites do not get, it is a horizontal fabric of Ukrainian society, you know, where everybody counts. You are a unit, you are a soldier, you do something, you contribute. And obviously, in the time of war, it becomes even more acute. Like now, uh, I can see amazing mobilization of Ukrainian um, diaspora here, where everybody's doing something, lobbying MPs, uh, managing uh, supply, humanitarian supplies to Ukraine, organizing demos, uh, you know, liaising with the media and so on and so on. Um, so that's this really defining feature, which might, you know, for Western people is it's not something very feasible, but very strong civil society where you do not have a you know hierarchical vertical structure the way it, it works in russia but uh, you know this horizontal networks that's why we are able to withstand this in ukraine now we have you know thousands of territorial defense which are actually civilians fighting uh, you know uh, manning the uh, the checkpoints in ukraine uh, protecting cities and so on and so on so uh, that's our strength and that's uh, what you know ma makes us so different on the post-soviet space Thank you. I just want to go back to Bishop Kenneth for a moment, um, because one of the things I've really noticed at the demonstrations has been the extraordinary breadth of the diaspora. You have people who are in the most high-end jobs of the you know, really major professional and um, business and, and, and so on careers that have taken them here. And I also talk to people who have worked in, in the, the humblest and most arduous jobs in society, often here with um, very you know, perhaps um, un, 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 undocumented, living in, in the shadows, who suddenly find that they have agency. They're able to go to a demonstration and they can shout just as loud as the um, guy next to them who runs an IT, t IT company or the woman next to them who who's a, a practicing psychiatrist or whatever. And I know you see that very much in, you, in your congregation in Benny Street and in your other parishes. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Well, certainly the Ukrainian community here in the United Kingdom is extremely diverse. We have people that have been born here and that are second and maybe even third generation in the United Kingdom. And they have definite feelings of this is their country, but also they also feel very close to the country of their ancestors. And then we have those who have come since the collapse of the Soviet Union coming here to work, to um, maybe make money to send home. And we have others who have come here to live an, an, another life. And we see that very much in, especially in our, uh, our parish here in London at our cathedral, um, those who um, have been part of organizing the traditional Ukrainian community organizations. But now, in the last eight years, especially since the Revolution of Dignity, we have the newer arrivals here who are also organizing themselves and, and finding their way here, finding who they are here. And they have direct an immediate contact, like Ulyana was saying, with her family and friends there. And so I think one of the things that we can absolutely say is that in many ways, Ukraine has never been so global as it is today, and the world has never been so Ukrainian as it is today. And I think that we're seeing that all across our 
um, Orthodox Ukrainian Orthodox um, parishes, Ukrainian Greek Catholic parishes, and just our community organizations. Thanks. I've got a question for you, um, James, because one one of the things that's bothered me in my years covering the Soviet Union, and then after that, um, when I was Moscow bureau chief for the Economist, was the Russia-centeredness of the coverage of the region. That the typical Moscow correspondent tend to be someone who had um, maybe studied Russian at, at university, had got a deep attachment to Russian cultural literature and for whom being the Moscow correspondent was the most exciting thing of their of their life, which is all great. But it tended it, it was very hard, I found, to get people to take the other bits, to put it you know, crudely, seriously. People were profoundly uninterested in, for example, the history of um, <coughs> Tatarstan and Bashkiria, mm. the idea that Siberia might have a different identity, the immense complexities of the Caucasus, the fate of the Circassians, um, the idea that Ukraine had actually been independent um, briefly in 1918, or that Belarus had been independent briefly in 1918, was regarded as completely weird. It was like talking about Cornish nationalism. Why would anyone be interested in this? So much more interesting things to talk about in Moscow. And I'm wondering, how much much blame do you think should be? I mean, first of all, do you think my characterization is fair? And secondly, um, did, how much did it matter? And do you think it's changing now? I, th I think that there's a large element of truth in what you say, Edward. Yes, I, I think it's. But it's, it's. Um, you know, it, it's. You know, you, you, you yourself. You were Moscow bureau chief. You know, that's where you you had to have a good excuse to go somewhere else. I mean, the Economist, like the BBC, would occasionally let you off I, the leash. I just went actually. I told yeah, them yeah. about it. <laughs> um, but I have to say that much of my travel, you know, I did go to Siberia a few times. I went to Chukotka right over the other side. But much of my other travel was prompted by armed conflict or political crises. And it was, you know, it was very much, you know, uh, if it bleeds, it leads, as they say in British journalism. Um, there were occasional opportunities to go elsewhere. I went, for example, to South Ossetia in 2006 when they had a referendum that nobody recognised, but obviously now, with the benefit of many years' hindsight, it was a hugely significant event. But yes, I, I think that's a problem within the nature of journalism, unfortunately, but larger organisations have the, uh, the budgets to do that, but um, it should obviously be done more. It's better if you can educate and prepare your audiences in advance for what might be coming, rather than just try to explain the last 20 years of history in your first dispatch when something major does happen. Um, can you give the microphone to Pavel? Yes, Pavel. I, 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 and I, I just wonder, before we come to the audience, which I want to do, um, I wonder how much of this is the failure to realise that we're basically dealing with imperialism and the problems of post-imperialism. I think a lot of people regarded the Soviet Union as fundamentally an ideological project, and when communism went, they assumed that it was therefore a collection of countries that were just post-communist, but not post-imperial. And the idea that Russia retained deep imperial pretensions uh, manifested, first of all, in the Karaganov Doctrine of 1992, so um, long, a long way back, and that one should see the fate of the, what I would call, former captive nations um, through a kind of post-imperial, post-colonial lens, struck people as being quite a, an odd way of looking at it. Um, and, and that um, also included the countries of Central and Eastern Europe to some extent. So I wonder how, how valuable do you think that is as, as, a, as a way of looking at what's happening now? Well, I think it's quite obvious that um, that this is a an important element in the whole thing. Uh, Central European countries went through an experience that lasted over forty years, um, and so the, at the beginning, some saw it straight as 
as an expansion of the Soviet Union, of that big country. Others were deluded and saw it as an ideological uh, venture. But uh, the delusion meant also that they were part of it. So if you got something like in our country in 1968, this had to be sorted out. And uh, the Soviets helped to sort it out. Just as, in a way, they're helping to sort it out in Ukraine. Uh, Marina, uh, you mentioned uh, the issue of identity and what the identity of Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine now is or how it is developing. Well, unfortunately, the strongest element of uh, getting at one's own identity as a nation, historically, is a war, is an armed conflict, an uprising, or anything like that, and differentiating from uh, the assaulting or ruling imperialist or other country. So uh, what Putin's Russia now shows is just bare imperialism. It goes back to the idea of 1944-45, or beginning 43, of the spheres of influence. Well, what is that? Uh, surely in the, in the Soviet case, it was about the empire. And that kind of thinking is continuing in heads of people who have a personal experience and are part of that uh, since they were born. And Putin was not only born into it, but he was kind of born into the KGB. And that is that you can do that, or you could do that only if your brain was switched to to a Soviet kind of imperial thinking. So of course he he saw the the demise of the Soviet Union as the greatest tragedy uh, of the world uh, since 1989 or since whenever. Uh, yes, that's that's the way of thinking that you've get got there. Well, thank you all. Thank you for coming. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for listening. Thank you for praying. Thank you to the Czechs for hosting us. And I wish we could meet under. Let's have, I'd put this. I wish we were meeting under happier circumstances, but at least we're meeting. So please um, feel free to hang around afterwards, talk to the other speakers. Do please look at the um, long list here of all the things that you can do. If you've got money, give money. If you've got time, give time. Um, if you, there's, there's, there's so much that is going on, and every one of these um, organizations here needs something that you've got and you can give. So on that note, um, do I hand it back to you? Do you want to say a final word? Well, host. Thank well, thank you very much. Uh, I just would like to conclude maybe on echoing two, two thoughts and comments. Uh, the, the first one was by Reverend Nowaski that he, that he mentioned that Ukraine is global 
in the globe is now the Ukraine, which I think is a tremendous, tremendous capital uh, today. And the second, what Marina uh, was saying, that Ukraine is in control, in full control of its destiny. And I believe if we couple these two with the proactive Western support, the Ukrainian fight for freedom, but also what has been mentioned here, the strong national soul would be successful. And uh, so with that, I would like really to extend my profound thank you to the panelists that joined us this evening.